Yeah, we were talking about, um, have you ever seen any good movies with, uh, with like people playing video games and stuff? Because it always <laughs> seems so incredibly stilted and weird and yeah, it fake. seems off, yeah. Now, I'm sure there must be some examples. I can't think of any now. Actually, one of my best examples of like representations of computers in films in recent memory is, um... Captain Marvel, the Marvel movie, because it's set in the 90s. And there's a scene where like the heroes and the aliens are standing in the room and they're using a 90s computer. And it's going so slow and they don't understand why is this technology so bad. (laughs) That's realistic. (laughs) It's quite a funny scene, actually. Um, I mean, I guess in some ways that Ready Player One film shows shows virtual reality in a way that I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking more more in like a realistic setting where you see some like often it's like in in like whatever comedies or whatever mm. we have this character where it's like sort of a deadbeat, uh, like in I Love You Man, where it's like he spends a lot of time playing console games mm. and stuff, and it's always like it's this sort of very very surface level mm. character trait. Actually, they yeah. like Nintendo or <laughs> Xbox. Oh yeah, there's a great uh, example of this. Um, you know this show um, Broad City, where you have a character who's not the roommate of one of the main characters, but the boyfriend of the roommate of one of the main characters. Right. And he's this overweight, obnoxious guy. He's just sitting in the couch, and he's always playing computer games. You don't see what he's playing, but he's sitting there playing, and he's talking into his uh, headpiece about, <laughs> like, shouting and stuff, and he's asking the main character to go bring him stuff from the fridge and eating their food. Yeah. He's really a funny character, actually. Another instance of that is uh, House of Cards, where Kevin Spacey... Horrible person, by the way. His character, Frank, whatever. To show that he's like a bit normal and stuff and quite aggressive too, he he like plays Xbox in his basement or whatever. And it's always this like violent shooter game. And I think that's often the way it's portrayed. It's like this like Call of Duties. Like it's only to show some surface level observation about the character. Didn't he actually act in a Call of Duty game or something? (laughs) I think he's a villain in one of these games or something. I mean, he's a real life villain, so... (laughs) He might just have been. I, I'm not too familiar with that series because I don't really care for first-person shooters, but it's become more and more common to have big-name actors in gaming, and I think it's often kind of... Uh, I don't really like it because it's it's often just to draw in a crowd, and often I think the, the actors used in games are often not really used to the medium, so they play kind of stiff and two-dimensional. Often it doesn't work so well. There are a couple of recent examples, I think, Though I haven't played it, I think Death Stranding, the Kojima game. Yeah, uh, it's Mats Mikkelsen. Yeah, and um, yeah, Norman Reedus is the main uh, character you play. One of the few games where the actor is the main character that you play. And apparently, I haven't played it, but apparently he does a really good job. And there's a lot of like these cameos by famous people in that game. Yeah, the whole process for that game is kind of interesting, though, because the, the main actors were so involved, yeah. like you'd see like Twitter updates and stuff where like they're hanging out and it seemed like a really like involved process and it seemed they didn't just come in for a couple of days and mm. do their lines and fuck off, you know, yeah. they, they seemed really involved with the project and I think that's really cool and I'd love to see more of that kind of stuff in video games yeah. uh, with actors because it's not that I don't want to see big name actors in video games, I just, I don't like the whole 
uh, they come in and read like five lines and then disappear into night, uh, well, having collected their paycheck. Like in Oblivion, for instance, you had like Patrick Stewart do like ten lines for the like the the emperor or like, mm. and it. Yeah, he was in uh, also in Lands of Law One yeah. uh, as a voice. I really like that though. But um, I I really like Patrick Stewart as yeah, an actor. He's great. He's yeah. fascinating, but it it was a bit like a bit stiff. Yeah, and I think often that's the case when you hire like. Actors, you do it to get their names, and often the directing isn't really very strong. Yeah, well, I think that the case has often been in, in games traditionally that you, you're not really a, an actor-director, you're like a, a game developer, and you don't really know how to instruct an actor and write well for actors. Maybe sometimes you know how to direct a voice actor because you've done that a couple of times, but when you get like a real yeah. fully-fledged Hollywood hero in your studio, you, you maybe you get a bit starstruck and don't really know how to approach it. Yeah, or voice acting is one thing. I, I think, guess my issue has often been like when you're trying to integrate people, like you make the CG version of, yeah, yeah. of uh, this or that actor. Or, I mean, like a really good voice acting, uh, you have, um, yeah, like in Portal 2 where Steve Merchant has the voice acting for one of the main characters and it's, it's just brilliantly done. It's funny, it's well-written. That works really well. But like if you make a 3D model of your actor and put him in the game or use some video footage often it just doesn't work because it looks a bit weird and <laughs> yeah. they're not directed well and it's a bit off like these david cage games yeah yeah, yeah. and i see they've done it too in the star citizen main campaign mm. where they brought in a bunch of people famous actors although they brought in like a couple of people who also have been heavily involved with voice acting like mm. um what's his name luke skywalker mark hamill yeah mark hamill which is on a bit of video game work, I think, but at least yeah, a lot totally. of comic work, like yeah. uh, cartoon work. Yeah, he's done lots, yeah. lots of stuff. Um, he's uh, famous for portraying the Joker in yeah, the yeah. Batman animated series, I think, mm. and um, also in the games. Yeah. Another good example we're using actors in games is called Telling Lies, which is the same guy who made Her Story, his recent game. Right, that was that sort of uh, investigative... Uh, where you go through sort of recordings and stuff? Yeah, it's the Sam Barlow game, the second game. And it's, as you say, it's you're looking through video footage from people's uh, like Skype calls. And um, there's one actor who's quite famous, at least, uh, Logan Marshall Green. And you might know him because you confused him with Tom Hardy because he looks quite similar. <laughs> but he's also a good actor in his own right. And he, he's in this. Um, he's not just a good actor because Tom Hardy's a good actor. Well, sometimes you have lookalikes <laughs> that are casted in things and, you know... Sort of coasting on the fame of their more. Yeah, and that would be a shame to talk about him in that sense because he's, he's a good actor himself. In this, really good. And, I mean, seeing as it is video clips, I guess it's directing actors rather yeah, than just yeah. honky CG model thing. Yeah, I think it's become increasingly obvious to me that just using traditional movie making techniques in games is often just incredibly boring mm. and I know we discussed this before but mm. why not do something more there's such a potential in games yeah I've got mixed feelings because I think of course you can use whatever resources you have and there are some nice examples I mean <laughs> it's kind of a dated genre this FMV adventure style games from the 90s where you use film footage often with characters in digital environments and uh, they're solving puzzles and a lot of those games 
may not have been good. It's got a bad rep though. There were some classics in that era. Yeah, I love. Uh, I used to play Under a Killing Moon. Yeah, uh, Tex Murphy games. Yeah, like it feels sort of cheesy now, but it does have a charm to it. And they were not bad games by any stretch of the imagination. They were pretty cool. And for its time, it was also super innovative. Like I remember, like in the nineties, there were these attempts to bring like movies into video games, and it was always kind of weird because they didn't yeah. quite know how to do it. So. And then you have the Star Commander games and stuff, which is what the, the whole Star Citizen thing is based off on those old FME games. Yeah, but there's a recent game you might not have heard of because it's not really talked about that much, but it's really good. I really like it. And it's called Contradiction Spot the Liar. I don't really like that last part. It should just be, I just call it Contradiction. It's by a guy called Tim Follin. And it's like a daytime TV crime affair. It's just, it's like this detective going around in a small town and you're talking to people. It's mostly conversations. And when you spot a contradiction, you point it out. The gameplay is very simple, but it's, it's tastefully done. And I love this actor. The character is called Detective Jenks, played by Rupert Booth. It's not exactly hammy, but it's a little bit expressive, his acting. What, like Nicolas Cage expressive? Or? Well, I mean, you know, in a lot of times in these things, you can end up with like a bad actor who's like overly expressive. But this is good acting, which right. is just a bit playful in a way. For example, often you'll have like an interview situation and you're showing a character something, like you're holding up a thing and he says, what do you think about this? And it, <laughs> his presence is so great. It's really funny and... Um, <laughs> Without, like, going over into hammy or annoying. As far as, you know, like, modern FMV games go, this is really so good. Uh, similar to her story, like, there have not been that many FMV games these days, right. but they are the two standouts to me. Yeah. yeah. And they've been pretty well received, too, I think, mm. by most people who have played them. Mm. The problem is, of course, they don't look very glamorous. Like, they're, they're kind of... Well, her story got a lot of hype, won a lot of awards, but this one hasn't really been talked about, which I think is a shame because I think a lot of people would enjoy it. Well, I think in the mainstream, even her story isn't that well-known. It's well-known among people who review video games. But yeah. I think it's fascinating. I love when people do these sort of takes on gaming that are a bit off the beaten path. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the 90s was such a weird time for games, so many weird concepts. And I like the idea of, you know, picking up some of that stuff and integrating it into new games. Yeah, there's this game I've been meaning to play uh, yeah. called Hypnospace Outlaw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's this really, just seems like this nightmarish version of 90s internet. Yeah, it looks uh, so weird. It's so weird and the music is so fantastic. The One of the musicians who worked on it, who goes by the moniker Hot Dad, he has a <laughs> YouTube channel. That's how I found the game. I listened okay. to the soundtrack and it was just, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like he has this song called Chowder Man. And apparently that's some character in the game or, or okay. whatever. And he has this theme, like Chowder Man song and mm. the return of Chowder Man. <laughs> like, okay, okay. And it's so over the top and he's like this action hero or whatever. Because it's Sounds basically, like, it looks like you're playing from a desktop point of view, going through like yeah, a, it's like a, simulation, a weirdo 90s internet. It feels a lot like a Tim and Eric skit brought to life. It's like a Cinco product <laughs> because the, the premise, as far as I understand, is like you strap yourself into this thing at night okay. and then you enter this, this hypnospace mm. internet <laughs> when you sleep. It seems super interesting. I can't wait to play it. Yeah, aesthetics are really cool also. The kind of yeah, yeah. ugly retro, too many colors and... Yeah, sort uh, of vaporwave-ish. Uh, but not so smooth, more rugged. Yeah, it looks super sick. I can't wait to play it. But yeah, we were talking about 
bringing up some maybe some recommendations from this year or maybe from this decade even yeah because this is kind of like our new year's episode uh, yeah we're approaching the new the new decade the new decade yeah the 2020s yeah There's finally you'll be able to wear those uh, new year glasses with the zeros as eyes oh yeah i'm gonna wear them all of next year yeah even though i don't need glasses necessarily just yeah probably through all the 20s yeah <laughs> I mean, seize, seize the moment. You were talking about maybe some like stuff you liked. Yeah, I had this idea that we'd have like you know a lot of uh, sites and podcasts and stuff. They have like favorite films of the decade or whatever, and I thought it might be interesting to have something a bit more idiosyncratic. So I, I made a, a few suggestions of things from the last few years that I found interesting, but not like the best movie. One of the things I, I thought might be interesting was. Um, Favorite virtual environment, <laughs> basically like a space in a game where you like to hang out, more or less. Yeah. What is that? Well, I was thinking of specifically <laughs> Subnautica, which is yeah, 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 a game where you're you're on an alien planet. It's and you're under the water. The just the atmosphere there is just so chill and nice, and it's an exploration game basically, and just exploring the water. It's kind of a survival game too, right? Yeah, kind of like a Metroid-style survival mix. I'm not a big survival game fan, and this has those elements, but done in a way that I find it very enjoyable. Yeah, um, a lot of survival games are incredibly samey. Like yeah. if you played one of them, it, like a lot of them feel incredibly similar. And they're often quite stressful, and you need to tick the boxes. Yeah, and, and tedious. Yeah. But this one is is really so smooth and enjoyable, just all the different kind of aquatic creatures, like these whale-like uh, sounds from these huge turtle creatures. And some of them are aggressive, some of them are benign. It just, I wish I could just spend more time there. Yeah. After I finish the game, really. It's interesting. I've been meaning to play it for a while. It looks gorgeous. Um, just underwater levels and game settings are very fascinating to mm. me. Uh, did you play Abzu? I've seen it. I haven't checked it out. Yeah, it's also just incredibly beautiful yeah, and just nice. this great sense of place, mm. like underwater. Very beautiful, uh, very serene, well worth playing, very just stylish. And even just like underwater levels in games like Super Mario 64 and stuff. Yeah. So is this, I don't know, there's uh, a tranquility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're a bit floaty and stuff. Yeah, and often like the score will be different. Yeah. Like you'll have a more... Like underwater music is fascinating. You know, I'm sure you could make a great like Spotify list of underwater scores from uh, games and music. And, yeah, and maybe and just films. throw in like some, not necessarily underwater scores, but songs that sound like yeah. they would fit mm. underwater. I think that's my project for 2020. Ah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. I'd listen to that. Do you have a, a thing you're thinking about from the last decade? Well, I have some like, just some closing ideas. Mm. Like some some observations about art that I would, would find, like because I read this and I found it incredibly fascinating. It's by Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh yeah, and it's not it's not from the past decade. It's from like two thousand four or something. So it's from a book she wrote. It's called The Wave in the Mind: Talks and Essays on the Writer, the Reader, and the Imagination. Okay, so these are just different essays she's written. Yeah, and there's this part of it that's very incredibly beautiful and poignant. In relation to art and what art is and what art can be. And she's talking about her deceased mother. Oh, yeah. And I can just read a part of it here. Read what I find really beautiful. So this is it. My mother died at 83 of cancer in pain. 
her spleen enlarged so that her body was misshapen. Is that the person that I see when I think of her? Sometimes. I wish it were not. It is a true image, yet it blurs, it clouds, a truer image. It is one memory among 50 years of memories of my mother. It is the last in time. Beneath it, behind it, is a deeper, complex, ever-changing image, made from imagination, hearsay, photographs, memories. I see a little red-haired child in the mountains of Colorado, a sad-faced, delicate college girl, a kind, smiling young mother, a brilliantly intellectual woman, a peerless flirt, a serious artist, a splendid cook. I see a rocking, weeding, riding, laughing. I see the turquoise bracelet on her delicate freckled arm. I see, for a moment, all that at once. I glimpse what no mirror can reflect. The spirit flashing out across the years. Beautiful. That must be what the greatest artists see and paint. That must be why the tired, aged faces in Rembrandt's portraits gives us such delight. They show us beauty not skin deep, but life deep. And I think what she's talking about there is incredibly just important to life and art in general. Like we talk a lot about movies, right? Mm. But just seeing sort of a larger scale or a larger picture behind, because like even the movie we just watched and we're discussing, like you can see it there too. Like she is looking back at a sort of recreated life, like mm -hmm. all these bits and pieces, like some of it may be hearsay, some of it may be recreation, some of it may be very true. Mm. But I think trying to portray the nuances of that will be, even if it's not all the way true, it's very true to human experience, mm -hmm. right? So I think, I don't know, just trying to view, you know, the experience of life through these different types of lenses i don't know it's grasping at something that i think all art is trying to do right mm. it's trying to look beyond the surface level which i think is always something we often critique mm. when we see it in movies and it's often incredibly tedious to us when we see it it's just entertainment right mm -hmm. so i think trying to grasp at this deeper human truth through art i think that's sort of a good way to maybe go into the new decade, right? Yeah, that's a beautiful quote. Really nicely written, I thought. Yeah. And incredibly sad, but mm. also very, like, wholesome. Mm. I think Ursula K. Le Guin is just a peerless writer. Mm. Fantastic. Like, not only her fiction, but just reading her commentary on stuff. Mm. And I've heard some speeches by her, and it's all just... Yeah, I've seen some speeches by her. She's, she looks like a very... Incredibly interesting and bright, woman. intellectual mm. in a very approachable way. Mm. I've only actually read the one book, uh, Left Hand of Darkness, which has a very interesting concept. It's about an ambassador who comes to a new planet where the humanoid species are asexual, they produce asexually, and they kind of change gender uh, when it needs to. Yeah, it's and a it's, really weird world. Yeah, it just kind of explores like uh, gender and feminism and all these sorts of things in a sci-fi setting in a very interesting way. I really like that book, actually. Yeah, it's a great book. I love how weird the alien setting is. Like a lot of sci-fi is kind of tropey mm. and you feel like you've sort of been there before. But when Ursula K. Le Guin writes about alien societies, she really tries to make it alien. And it's fascinating, but it's also super applicable. The stuff she writes yeah. about is incredibly universal. 
So you feel like it has this relevancy, even though it's incredibly alien. You can view it allegorically or symbolically or mm. relevantly. It feels applicable to human society. It's not so out there that it feels like, you know, weird fantasy. It, in this book, at least, I felt like it could have been Earth in a way. Yeah. Right. They're complex cultures. The themes. With politics and... The themes could just as easily have been explored, or maybe just not just as easily, but they could have been explored in human society as well. Mm. And of course, human societies are so different the world over. Very true. Um, I also love her Earth Sea books. Yeah. They're also incredibly fascinating and just a really interesting way of writing fantasy. She has a way of making these genre books just be incredibly universal and mm. literary without being boring. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I guess I feel like I was overexposed to fantasy in my teens. Yeah. I just read so much of it. And uh, in the end, I just almost couldn't stomach it. So I have a hard time reading it now. Yeah, but that that's sort of why her fantasy books are so great. They feel incredibly fresh because they were written in such a poetic and very like sharp way. Mm. The worlds feel very real, but not because of like deep world building like uh, Tolkien, for mm. instance, or Robert Jordan or whatever. There's this sense of uh, humanity yeah. and soul in the books. And it's just very, like, it's incredibly social books. Like, Yeah, I, I get really the feeling that she's, um, there's something about like the cultures of the people in the book that's very well thought out. Like the social and cultural aspects of the world she portrays often very interesting and they have like a, a often a concept that is thematically loaded in a way that fantasy often isn't. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's a hallmark of a good writer or a good mm. artist. She has a project, she has something she wants to say and mm. communicate. And I think that's also true of like a good director. I think mm-hmm. often movies can be well made, but they feel soulless and hollow and vapid. And I think a lot of it has to do with people not really having like this core idea or thing they want to communicate, right? This project. And I think it's incredibly... Well, you can always tell, right? Yeah, if you it's can something that comes from the heart very or something that you're really interested in. Or if it's something that you think looks interesting and want to participate in, like, playing in the sandbox of fantasy, for example. Right, right. Like, it's almost as if, like, real art will get out no matter what. You can't really stop it. It has to sort of... Like, some people would just get their project done, even if it's in a different medium. Like they just want to tell mm. their story, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, there's this other quote by Ursula K. Le Guin that I think is interesting. Nice. Talking about art and movies and stuff. Um, so it was from a speech given at a National Book Awards, talking about books, actually. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very relevant in, in terms of just art and also movies. Like, it's very relevant to the stuff we discuss. And I'll just read a small excerpt of it. Um, so she's talking about books, but just consider it like it's relevant to all of art. Here it is. Books aren't just commodities. The profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. But then, so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art. So yeah, I think that's something to bear in mind about art, making art, making movies. You know what that made me think of, actually? What? 
ownership of property in big cities like London. Yeah. Where it's less about people living in the space than it is like way of harvesting money for rich people. Right, right. Like so many properties in London are being bought up by like Saudi millionaires and billionaires and yeah, like Chinese uh, Rich investors. people, often from foreign countries, but also like English people, and they're not being used as spaces for people, which they should be, but yeah. they're being, yeah. Incredibly like just antisocial development of yeah. ownership. Yeah. And it's sad to see, actually. It's sad to see. It's so sad. It really is. Like, uh, I know we like to talk shit about uh, capitalism, but <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's just... There's so many like stories about just ownership being taken from the people, mm. basically. So you feel more and more disenfranchised and more and more like, I don't know, like you feel this sense of existential dread mm. because you're not really in connection with anything anymore. Like you're being not only your property, but like your information and your rights and everything is like vanishing in front of your eyes and your political rights and all this about, you know, not censorship, but like propaganda mm. and, and social influence and like these, there's so much going on that the future is just rife with uh, all this material for for unpleasant movies. And for worry, really. <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is worrying, I don't know, but it's also maybe a pessimistic worldview, I don't know. Well, it's also potential for good change, you know. Yeah. It's, it'll be hard won, I think, in our time. Yeah. But also good change and positive things happening in the world isn't always as interesting to read about, to watch, to... I'd love to read some of that stuff right now. Yeah, read a good heartwarming story. Yeah, Yeah. to think they voted in Boris Johnson in England, man. Jesus. You know, there's, uh, there's been a lot of talk about why Corbyn has failed in his campaign and uh, The Guardian, they did a lot of these uh, really nice video journalism stuff on YouTube where they'd uh, go around talking to people in the streets and uh, people just don't like Jeremy Corbyn. And as far as I understand, there's just been so much negative propaganda directed at him since the last election. And, you know, you can say what you like about Corbyn, but to put him beside that monstrous buffoon that is Boris Johnson, and then pick that horrible creature. It's just amazing to me. I do not understand how a person could objectively... Well, it's been an incredible media spin, like the amount of articles written on, like the alleged anti-Semitism of Corbyn, like compared to... Like I even saw a statistic about it. It's like the the number of derogatory articles written about Corbyn compared to the articles Mm. written about Boris Johnson. It's just ludicrous. There's Mm. this incredible angle to to a lot of the articles written about them, Mm. like the political process. And of course plays a huge part, but it, it's not really even a huge matter of policy. There's this just yeah, yeah. personality play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of people who like have tended to vote for the Labour Party and now switching over because they feel so conflicted and angry. And you know, it's really sad to see. I, I just, I mean, I hope the next decade for Britain is good, but it doesn't look like it, does it? It looks horrible. It looks dark. I don't know. I guess we can focus on like better things because <laughs> thinking about that shit is just... It's sad. It's sad. It's yeah. sad. But, you know, Christmas is coming up and yeah. uh, it's time for, you know, the power of positive thinking mm-hmm. uh, and friendship and uh, altruism yeah. and to forget about all these worldly bads. 
Now, this is kind of our New Year's episode. So, uh, <laughs> good things for the next year, hopefully. Yeah. Portentous, good portents. You know, one of the, the, the cultural things that I've liked best this year has been um, a character in a video game uh, who I've just fallen in love with. Uh, it's, it's a really well-written game overall, but this specific character is so great. It's an Estonian game called Disco Elysium, where you play a detective who's uh, so drunk out of his mind he's got amnesia, he can't remember anything. And uh, he's supposed to solve a, a murder mystery case in the place where he's at. And really early in the game, you meet this 12-year-old drug addict brat called Kuno. And when you see him, he's throwing rocks at the hanged corpse of the man you're going to find out what happened to. And he's so, like, obnoxious and vile. And he says, like, uh, fuck you, pig. He talks in, like, a northern English accent. (laughs) And he's... um, so kind of like aggressive and he talks about himself in the third person like Kuno doesn't give a fuck (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the voice acting is great and he's really funny and as you continue in the game and talk to him in different stages it's kind of a role-playing game so you can take different branches but if you follow his arc it gets quite complex actually and there's a lot of nuance to him and vulnerability yeah he's a really great character I think Really one of the standouts for a long time for me, this this horrible little brat that's <laughs> uh, so funny and, um, yeah, intense. Yeah, it seems like people are responding very well to Discoalism. It seems yeah. like it's been getting great reviews. Yeah, it's so good. I actually picked it up day one because it just it seemed to vibe with me. I usually don't do that, but um, I guess I've been hungering for like a game that's really well written yeah, and it looks really stylish. And it's kind of like, a, I'd say it's the proper spiritual successor to Planscape Torment, which was one of these 90s games. I thought about it, actually, because it's much more similar to point-and-click adventure games, essentially. Because unlike a lot of RPG games, there isn't any, like, there's no violence. You're not fighting against it. I mean, there is some violence, but you, it doesn't have, like, a fighting mechanic as right. such. You're basically going around clicking things and talking to people and speaking a lot to your inner voices and stuff. Uh, well, it but, sounds like a good version of Planescape Numenera. Yeah, which I suppose it's fair to say that it's it's not a bad game, but just not that interesting. Because it doesn't really break any rules. It just does the same thing as the old one did, more or less. Yeah, except instead of having an engaging story to begin with, it just throws exposition at you yeah. until you yeah. capitulate. <laughs> yeah, until you fall asleep. Which is just uh, not a great way of selling your sort of universe. Mm. Yeah, but this game actually innovates quite a lot, actually, with the gameplay. I mean, even though you're just pointing and clicking, the way it, you relate to your character as having all these different aspects, like your sense of um, visual calculus or your empathy or your uh, logistics. These are all different voices inside your head that you're talking to all the time. And you can put points into them to increase your amount of empathy, for example. There's a lot of weird categories like half-light, and uh, they're a bit unclear what what they actually mean, but um, perception as well. And those voices play out against you, and when you're talking to someone, they can comment, and you have to relate to that. And uh, yeah. I think that's interesting. That's exactly the type of stuff I'm talking about when I yeah. say I want to see more interesting game systems, yeah. because there's so much interesting shit you can do there. Mm. I just like when people try to innovate a bit. Mm. 
and I guess, you know, seeing it from that perspective, there's, you know, a positive future ahead. Yeah. Oh, I think so. <laughs> there's a lot of good art being made. Yeah. Like in, a lot. in terms of movies and, and video games and music too. Yeah. We're, we're living in interesting and good times, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should focus on that and not on the existential dread of living in these days. <laughs> yeah. A, a really good example of culture. Like adapt, ad- adapting culture. I don't yeah. know how to put it. It's this new series that I'm sure we've both been watching the Watchmen series. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Watchmen series that's uh, created by Damon Lindelof. Mm, mm. What did he do? He he did. He was a writer and lost. Yeah, it's. I really and leftovers like. also. I think. Am I wrong? Uh, I think he did uh, leftovers as well. Yeah, I did that. Which is a kind of prestige HBO mystery series, I think. Right. I never saw it, but I, now I really want to. <laughs> I like Watchmen because I came into it with really low expectations. Yeah. But it exceeded... Um, like, the movie was okay. It was quite quite good and, and bad at the same time. I think. Tonally, it was always off to me. I never quite managed to like it. Though I could like aspects of it perhaps a little bit. But um, yeah. It really missed the point of the comic. Yeah, it didn't understand the source material and kind of fetishized its uh, aesthetic yeah. more than it, you know. It's kind of weird also that you're deconstructing superhero movies before they're really established as a <laughs> cultural... Uh, yeah, yeah. In that sense, it's a uh, more fitting time for the series to step in. Yeah, it's more culturally relevant at this time with yeah. uh, just incredible amount of superhero stories. Mm. Which I gotta say, I—that's my hope for the new decade. Less superhero stories. Oh, that's going to fail. There's so many in the world. I know. I know. Like TV series and. Films. But at some point, we're going to have to get tired of it. Like cowboy movies were inescapable at one time. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah, and then now it's we can look back on it and pick the good things. Yeah, the difference there is, that I guess that. Today, superhero movies, they're such genre-bending things. I mean, they can be space adventures. There can be so many different things. <laughs> of course they can. And you can have the deconstructed stuff and yeah. you can have like all, all sorts of ways of doing it. Like they are modern myths, modern gods, modern yeah. modern demigods. Mythical stories yeah. and sagas uh, and stuff. But as we've discussed previously, mm. it's sort of glamorizing uh, the individual and the like the mm. Superman. Ubermensch. Yeah. Of course, not that Watchmen does that. It problematizes it. But all good media, like if you're going to do something within a genre, it's it's always fun to problematize and criticize it within the genre. Hmm. So, yeah. But I think we've discussed uh, <laughs> strenuous issues long enough. No. So maybe that'll do it for this postscript, post-episode discussion. Yeah, I think uh, that's enough for now. We've been talking for a while. Mm. We hope you have a pleasant new year and a new decade ahead. Yeah, and thanks for listening and hope you come back and listen some more yeah. new episodes for the that'd, next decade. That'd be nice. Yeah. Take care. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.